forever. Dog. Welcome to Public Intellectual. I'm your host, Jessa Crispin. Public Intellectual is kept going by the support of its listeners. If you would like to become a supporter because you enjoy the show and want it to continue, then go to patreon.com slash public intellectual. You'll get access to bonus materials like show notes, extra episodes, exclusive writings, the things. So go to patreon.com slash public intellectual. I have tried to listen to the podcast, My Favorite Murder. I don't really understand the appeal. I understand vaguely the appeal of the new true crime boom, which is we see bad things happen and we want to see the situation resolved. Bad things happen all the time. We very rarely get resolution. So that seems nice. But focusing primarily on one very specific type of victim and one very specific type of murder and the intense interest and fascination with it that I don't really understand. So I invited Makita Brotman, the author of An Unexplained Death and many other books, to come and talk about this sort of new true crime wave, what it says about its mostly female audience. We are in the midst of a true crime boom. And for whatever reason, the primary audience for true crime is white women like myself and you. Uh, So uh, in order to just sort of get this conversation started, I guess my first question is, um, do you do you like true crime podcasts or TV or Netflix or movies or any of the other forms that they take these days? Do I like them? Yeah. Um, Not really, Uh, but I think it's only because I'm kind of, um, I'm a, such a, I'm such a kind of epicure and connoisseur that I'm, my appetite's spoiled and, I, there's there's a very very particular. I mean, I'm interested in the the raw the raw material and the true facts, and I can't really stand anything that's overly produced or constructed or edited or scripted. Or so I don't really enjoy listening to any kind of podcasts or watching any even even documentaries that have reconstructions or um, you know. Uh, that are artificially scripted I just I just can't really bear because my appetite now is only for the the real thing so um I I so and I do understand that that there is a lot of true crime stuff out there at the moment but I really don't I don't know if it's really a I think it's just a little blip on the horizon I think it's always there always been people have always been interested in true crime and it's always been there and there might be a little bit more now than usual but I think in the long view, it's not really um, significantly more. In order to research uh, this episode, I did try to listen to a couple of the most popular true crime podcasts, um, but they are pretty terrible. 
either the, you know, the, the heavily scripted done by an investigator of some kind revisiting a, um, a cold case to see if they can figure out who did it and they never can. Or the just chatty two ladies drinking some wine and talking about a murder for no apparent reason. Um, that seems to be the two forms that, uh, right. that these take. And I think there are, I mean, when you say that it's mostly a female interest, I think that's true. But I think there are sort of two kinds of uh, true crime fans. And, and maybe, the, maybe your descriptions of the podcast characterize them. Because I think the first kind tend to be the, like, at least maybe not all male, but gendered, traditionally gendered male, which is those people who are interested in, like, the ballistics and the the kind of who really fetishize those details who are into um the police work and the actual you know the criminalistics and the crime scenes and the the trajectory of the shots and those kinds of things and um and that tends to be i don't think the women who sit around drinking wine tend to be interested in that kind of thing that tends to be the cold case like reconstructionists and the guys who go out there into the into the field and try and find out what happened in a in a case and the the real impetus there is like solving the puzzle or finding something that other people haven't found and it's a really like kind of phallic impulse to you know to um dig things up that other people haven't found before so i have i don't really have very much i don't share that impulse And, and then the other kind is the other kind of fan are people who are interested in the way that crime like cracks open relationships and gets to the heart of um, the thing, the emotions that we all have, like desire and, and, and lust and greed and envy. And because all most crimes are about those, those emotions. And so I think it's for the women who sit around drinking wine and talking about crime, it's just a way of talking about those um, those emotions. And sometimes, I mean, when I've tried to listen to them, I, I haven't listened to many, but sometimes I think, well, they could just be talking about like cooking or something. It's, it just happens to be true crime, but, um, it seems to be kind of an excuse for friendship and a discussion of a, a topic that's sort of juicy, but there's lots of peripheral conversations and things. It's not, it, it just happens to be that something that people are talking about at the moment. And, they're not really getting to the heart of anything. Um, and, you know, the articles I read that say, well, this is all about helping women feel safe and um, um, providing a forum for people to express their fears. I mean, I honestly think that's just nonsense. I mean, yeah, I don't <laughs> understand that yeah. uh, line of thinking. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you've, you've got far more of a chance of being hit by a car, but people don't sit around talking about cars and and drinking wine <laughs> yeah it makes it makes no sense at all it doesn't I mean maybe it makes them feel safer because when I've heard people talk about why they're interested in true crime the answer is always they, they often say well it it helps me understand what goes through the mind of people who commit these crimes and helps me get a sense of the um the way these people think and how it's really fascinating to understand how people think and I'll be better. It'll help me to defend myself. But um, that, that maybe they feel that way, but I don't think that makes any sense at all. I don't think it does. And I think 
particularly because it's a very specific kind of murder that most of these podcasts uh, uh, delve into, which is the um, pretty white girl murder, which even if you are um, a pretty white girl and you are going to get murdered, it's not going to be a stranger who does it, right? It's right. going to be your dad. It's going to be your boyfriend, right. and, you know, whatever. Right. Um, it's going to be Amanda, <laughs> uh, Amanda Knox. Um, but uh, the, so the, the focus on this one particular type of murder does really interest me because it's, it's a fantasy, I guess, like, you know, yeah. Girl, yeah. white girls are told when they go up to college, yeah. you know, men are going to try to murder you constantly. Yeah. And rape it's like you a constantly. fantasy of it being important and being special and desired and, and sought after. And I mean, in fact, you know, true, true crime has come to mean that kind of murder. Whereas in fact, when people talk about true crime, that's what they mean. And, but in fact, you know, the majority of crimes are things like insurance fraud and, you know, really dull things that nobody's interested in at all. Um, murder is a very small percentage of, of crime in general. And of, of those, you know, the majority of murders are, are um, you know, gang and drug related mostly. And, and yeah, black street gangs. And again, not, not the kinds of things that there would be a podcast about because it's immediate Mm-hmm. who's done it and why and there's no question about it and it's also in the in most of those kind of murders the there's no clear line between victim and perpetrator because the the perpetrator of one crime is going to be the, the victim of the next so it's really impossible to to draw that clear line between us and them which which is the foundation of most of these podcasts and, and allows us to um, to take the part of the prosecution, which most of the books and podcasts take, and and to get into the mindset of like, who are these these people who do these things, mm-hmm. as if they're someone who's completely separate from us, um, and not part of the same community. Right. Um, I I have been in the past um, gone down sort of uh, you know rabbit holes online of these. Um, communities on Reddit and Facebook and mm-hmm. so on that that come together to solve cold yeah. cases yeah. and basically always fuck it up and ruin people's lives. <laughs> um, there was one case where a teenage girl had obviously killed herself, but and the mother constructed this idea of an intruder murdering her, oh, yeah, yeah. and they the group decided who it was um, and basically ruined his life over a suicide, you know. Um, yeah. And then there was one where um, a mysterious body was found and they, it was a suicide and they were trying to find out the identity of the man. And they investigated and investigated and thought they figured out and demanded that the family of this person take a DNA test to prove it. And they were so angry when the family refused. They gave it because it was their case. They thought they had the right to yeah. uh, conclude. I, I, I am fascinated, not so much about, um, you know, uh, pretty girls being murdered by strangers, but I am fascinated in the way that it, these things drive people crazy. Yeah, and the way that it becomes a kind of, um, like the, the way that trials become kind of scenes of like public retribution that are necessary. And 
and um, and when people and when girls especially go missing because no one really cares about anyone else going missing, there's this kind of fascination of people following them and wondering what's happened to them, and um, and it's interesting how quickly those people turn if the if the girl turns up, and it's almost like a, this collective disappointment, um, especially if the family wants to keep quiet and doesn't want to explain what's happened. And, you know, there's this, this um, suspicion that maybe she was like just off on a drug binge or maybe she was, you know, off with a guy or like it wasn't actually a legitimate crime or emergency at all. But rather than relief, which is actually, you know, what everyone's been praying for, they're, they're disappointed, like their taxpayers' money has been wasted on this search. And it's, yeah, it's interesting how there's no sense of... Um, isn't this isn't this safety what we were hoping for all along it's as if that there's an outcome that they've been cheated of have been robbed of right and and you know they retweeted something about it and so now they're emotionally invested they thought about it for four minutes and so now they feel like they are entitled to um some sort of justification for that four minutes of caring it's really kind of funny yeah yeah Yeah. i was looking at someone telling me about this this girl who was um went missing in hawaii and and was found after 17 days or something and like nothing had happened to her and it was strange how there was this like collective sense of disappointment and and confusion like she must have something must have happened she can't have just been like drinking water and eating shrubs there must have been someone must have attacked her or or attempted to attack her or there must have been some wild beast or something um in some ways I think that part of this um, this kind of obsession is a way of making life more interesting. Because in some ways, like I was saying, this thing about safety, about people feeling safer from reading true crime, the truth is you're you're far more likely to be killed as a pedestrian, um, more likely to be struck by lightning. I mean, that's extremely rare, but more likely to have a household accident than than to be killed by a serial killer. So the idea that like you're you're at risk from these um, these sexually obsessed maniacs who are who are stalking stalking white women it's it kind of makes makes you makes you a bit more interesting um as a target but also i think that the crimes that aren't talked about the kind of everyday crimes the crimes involving women and men who are not white those are also fascinating if you just um look at them closely enough and things don't have to be exaggerated or um, expanded. I mean, ordinary life can be really interesting. <laughs> I I was thinking about the other day, The do you remember that the music video for Runaway Train by Soul Asylum in the 90s where they put up pictures of missing children uh, or missing teenagers? No, I'm afraid not. I'm really unhappy. Well, they, they did like, they did a follow up um, years later to find out if anybody was, uh, uh, you know, re- if families re- were reunited because yeah. of this video. And it turns out that some of them had been, but it was mostly, it wasn't, you know, a, a pretty, uh, happy family portrait, uh, you know, of a child ripped away from the loving grip of their, of their family. It was, um, people trying to escape horrific abuse, abusive situations. Right. And one of the women that or one of the teenage girls that was uh, in the uh, in the video, 
it turns out that her father had said that she was missing, but really he had buried her in the backyard. Like he had killed her. Um, and so I think that this sort of this investment of solving these crimes and the concern over the missing girls and all that stuff is comes from this fantasy of like these perfect nuclear families and anything yeah. other than that, yeah. like either doesn't exist or is just like, yeah, it's like this, this, and a lot of, um, crime stories are like that. This, this fat projection of what's out there is a way of avoiding uh, attention to the horrors that are going on in here. And which is where, you know, most of the violence and dysfunction and unhappiness and just, you know, not, not even, interesting violence but just ordinary everyday dull <laughs> misery and unhappiness occurs yeah. is just in the in the family and it's not it's not um really interesting outside that situation and it's not kind of sexualized child abuse it's just unhappy children um bored sad lonely people in everyday family situations and um but it's not dramatic and so yeah this this kind of projection onto you know, idealized Ted Bundy like monsters is this perfect figure of the the like the fantasy um, stalker serial killer is is really a, yeah a way of detracting attention and projecting an idealized image of the the perfect projection of the the form that you would like evil to take. Um, your story reminds me of that. Do you know the story, The Monkey's Paw, by um, yeah, the, so the child comes comes back, but comes back in like a horrible form. So like the wish comes true, but it's it's you get your child, but not in the form that you want. You want the child to come back. Yeah. yeah. Um. So you wrote a book because you were uh, you overheard the uh, the death of somebody at your building, uh, possibly, and then you ended up investigating this death. Um, do you want to tell the backstory of that? I found, I thought your book was, um, amazing, by I the way. Think. Well, I was, I was, I went, I was out walking my dog early one morning and I saw these missing posters, um, for a man who was, I was interested in the posters because he was, um, 32 and, conspicuously like large and handsome which not the kind of person you imagine to go missing like six foot six and you know 200 pounds and like um and so I kind of became interested just 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 sort of morbidly curious and then uh I, I didn't hear anything more about the case and then a week later his body was found in the building in which I was living in at the time which was a old hotel old former hotel and he'd plunged been pushed or jumped from the roof and gone through an annex on the second floor and landed in a disused office building which used to be the hotel swimming pool and his body had been there for a week before it was found so um so he'd been missing for just over a week so the assumption was and i saw the police like climbing around on the roof and they found his flip-flops and his phone and watch and stuff on the roof and it was being treated like very cavalierly and everyone assumed it was a suicide just because, I mean, that's what you assume, I guess, when someone <laughs> takes a plunge from a high roof. And I assumed that too. And 
but he he had absolutely no reason to commit suicide when I mean, he was like in he was very healthy he was had no history of mental health problems he was he newly wed um he was doing well and he'd made plans for that the summer and he'd even made plans for that weekend and when i learned about that that's when i sort of got really interested in it because it was like he'd made like he'd booked an edit suite for that weekend he was a he was editing videos and it just seemed so peculiar that oh and then he left home and like taking a telephone call and he just like stepped out of the house as if he was in a hurry and it just seemed like a really strange last you know last move to make like it really didn't he really didn't see like to leave home in a hurry wearing his flip-flops it just didn't seem as if he was out why would you leave home in a hurry to commit suicide it seemed like it would have been spontaneous so I got really interested in like the history of the building the history of suicides suicides in hotels um missing people and so I like true crime books where the crime is like a treated as a springboard for discussions of all other kinds of philosophical issues around crime so that's how I tried to treat this this um crime or incident in my book I, I still don't know whether it was a crime or not but um it was really hard to get any information about it because the police well I'm not a reporter or a investigator and it was difficult for me to find out any information and um so I just kept like plugging at it for years and years and years and it just I just got further and further involved in the mystery and um it just it became kind of an obsession for me um but I think that it's not it's it's very different from the true crime that's that's fashionable now and in fact when my book came out people really either loved it or hated it and the people who hated it want wanted a traditional true crime book and I guess they were disappointed because it wasn't like a genre true crime book that followed a case from the you know from identified with the victim and went through the police procedurals and then went through the court and find the perpetrator and resolved the case and but people who liked it liked the fact that I go on all these tangents and peripheries and just follow these um sidetracks wherever they lead which is what I like in books myself too <laughs> um and and I think crime's really really good for that because it's a way of like I I find it's a way of like getting underneath the surface of things and because I think crimes open up cracks and allow expose things that are that people um try and cover up Yeah, one of the things that I liked so much about it was the documentation of the other deaths that happened in the building because it's trying to construct a very sort of traditional true crime um, narrative means that the person who dies is like capital V victim, right? And yeah. there are certain... Uh, personality traits that are preferred in that there's certain race uh, and right. uh, uh, so on that's um, preferred in that when really like the people who die young uh, suicide or murder or whatever like tend to live these sort of messy marginalized lives right um and find themselves both on the side of perpetrator and victim and and so on and so that's what i liked about it um that 
things were allowed to be messy and also these lives that are often just forgotten because, you know, the person was a little crazy or the person was, you know, kind of a dick or drunk or whatever. Um, They're just immediately forgotten. And I actually, I, I had a lot more of those. I found a lot more of those suicides, but the, and I, and I, there were a lot more of the sidetracks, but the editor really was worried that the book wasn't going to be appealing enough or, or that people were going to be like, that she wanted the plot to be, um, not, not to get, didn't want me to get too far from the, like the main plot. And I had to fight to keep a lot of the sidetracks and I, um, I still, I, I think I, I still would like to write a book that where I can, where I'm just let loose <laughs> without, without having to be constantly reined in. Um, I mean, I can see the, the, the need for like to be pulled back to have like a main thread, but I like that kind of unraveling and, and just like, for, it's kind of like, um, like, a, like a psychoanalytic session where you kind of just follow every association and, there isn't really like a, a main plot anyway. It's all, it's all connected. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and the majority of crime victims as well are marginal on the margins of society and also somehow often implicated in some way in their own death. And it's really hard for people to talk about that because it doesn't fit into the, the, the narrative of innocent victim and perpetrator. I mean, I found when I was researching this book that the police have something they call a um, righteous victim. <laughs> and that's someone who, you know, has, uh, you know, hasn't even had a parking ticket before. And, and there aren't actually that many of them. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was reading today, uh, this, um, well, a woman posted a personal essay today, uh, about the fact that she knew, uh, the, uh, Dayton, uh, mass shooting guy, (laughs) um, and she dated him. Mm -hmm. And so she wrote this essay of like, my ex-boyfriend is a Dayton, uh, shooter, um, she dated him for two weeks or whatever, but, um, you know, part of the, uh, true crime, uh, industry, especially like the more literary side of it with the memoirs and the personal essays and that kind of stuff mm. is women desperate to find some sort of personal connection to a murder <laughs> so that they can yeah. write about a book about it. Um, and I find that part of it, I find that part of it fascinating as well. There's been a lot of memoirs in the last couple of years of, oh, I knew somebody who murdered somebody or I knew somebody yeah. who got murdered. Yeah. And sometimes it's, it's, um, the connection seems le- legitimate and kind of interesting. Like if, you know, if your mother was killed or your or you lived through a situation and it's, and it make and you and you're able to reflect on it in an interesting way, but you're right. So I mean, I, I read like a whole spate of them, and there were a couple that really seemed like they were that the that the author would not have written any book at all if they hadn't had this. Like they weren't writers, but they but they had had this interesting connection. Um, there was one. I think it was called Visiting Hours or Visiting Time, where a woman who went to visit a guy in prison who committed a murder when he while they were at college together and it really was just not very interesting and then the other one was like the woman who um was best friends of the woman who dated 
Ashton Kutcher when, <laughs> and she was killed. And it was, uh, again, it's, it must be really hard to write that kind of book because if you're writing about someone who was murdered, you've got to be very careful about your own voice and get, get your tone right so that you don't, so that your story doesn't overshadow theirs. And yet, on the other hand, if they, if they died young, maybe they didn't have that in, very interesting story to tell. And, it's, and, and you can't really say that either. You can't say when someone dies in terrible circumstances, you, have to, you can't say anything unpleasant about them. So those books come off as kind of dull or sanctimonious or um, like a hagiography or, yeah, yeah just... Um, there are good. There are some really good books um, of like court reporting, though, where someone sits in on a trial and gets really interested in a trial. Mm-hmm. Like, um, and there's one by Janet Malcolm, *Iphigenia on Forest Hills*, and yeah, yeah, yeah. the the best one that I. This is an older book by um, Diana Trilling, and it's called *Mrs. Harris*, about this woman who murdered her husband, no, her lover, who was a famous diet doctor, and this was like back in the 1950s, and it's a really great book, and it's. She was, um, Diana Trilling was a really, um, this was like Lionel Trilling's wife. She was really sympathetic with the Mrs. Harris, the, the, the murderess. And, but then as she sat through the trial, she kind of lost sympathy. I mean, there's no question she was guilty, but it's just the kind of ebb and wane of her sympathies and the details and the, the things that people wear and the, moments of you know the sidebars and the kind of just just the way that careful examination of a trial can kind of bring out all those interesting moments of emotion and personality that I yeah that, and it's, and I think women are really especially good at but there are these volumes that I I used to have called Great British Trials and there was um one of the authors of those they were like compendiums of transcripts and there's a woman called F. Tennyson Jesse who writes, um, this is like, you know, she died in the 1950s, but again, like really great court reporting. And I find that that's really missing now. I mean, most newspapers don't even have court reporters. People can watch trials on, on TV. Um, but I think that's where women, um, women are drawn to true crime because it's about women do best when they're writing about emotion and detail and, and um, because they don't have a, this obligation to put themselves in the center of the story all the time and they let other people take center frame. Yeah. Mm. Helen Garner has written a couple of really great That's right. Her two, yeah. yeah. House, House yeah. of Grief. Yeah. That's a really, that's a really good one. Yeah. And um, there's someone else too that I was trying to remember who's, well, I know you don't like the Maggie Nelson book, but I, I kind of like the, the red parts too. I think that's, um, that's good. But yeah, I mean, and historically too, there's some, there's there's one by Rebecca West. Um, oh, sure. As well. yeah. yeah, yeah. The the I feel like part of the personal industry, personal essay industry uh, of trying to find something interesting about yourself um, and crime against you or crime against somebody else is a very sort of easy way to sort of sort of make us sensation of of yourself um although of course like i don't know of a single sort of um actual writing career that started in that way but it does seem to be um 
a good way to introduce yourself. Uh, yeah, yeah. Just sustaining it. I don't know. I just don't know about that. But yeah, I mean, I don't think this would be a very marketable essay at this time, but I'd really I'd love to read something by someone who had witnessed or experienced a crime um, in their family or something that happened very close to them. And they, it hadn't had any impact on them at all. <laughs> and it hadn't affected <laughs> them at all. They, they simply didn't think about it and went on with their lives and hardly remembered it. I mean, because I'm sure that happens. I'm sure that things only make an impact because they're supposed to. And at a different time, we would have just got on with things. <laughs> well, there have been multiple books by people claiming that their father was a Zodiac killer. So various people throughout California have thought my father might be the Zodiac killer. And really? I do find that kind of fascinating. Yeah, there's been at least two. I think there was a third one that was like self-published. Um, but the premise was, I think my dad could have been the Zodiac killer. Um which is a wonderful way to think about the American family, I think, of like <laughs> so many people, their father could. And then the, I was listening to a podcast uh, this week. I was listening to a lot of or trying the first episode of a lot of uh, true crime podcasts to think about this. Um, and one like one guy thought his father could have been the Golden State Killer. And then they announced who it was and had the DNA. And he was kind of disappointed. <laughs> really? um, yeah, that he just didn't because he thought, you know, well, maybe my dad is this. And that would explain why he's a violent piece of shit and why he was <laughs> away all of the time because yeah. he was out murdering. Yeah. Um, and I do think that's a kind of fascinating look at the American dad that maybe any of them could have been the Zodiac Killer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I suppose, you know, I know it's, it was very well known that, you know, the BTK killer, for example, was a paterfamilias who, you know, was like the local dog catcher who came, came home every day and whipped his children. <laughs> <laughs> so it, I guess it could be. I mean, every murder is someone's best friend and <laughs> someone's and his, father. his daughter is doing all the shows. Like she's doing, she's oh, yeah? done yeah. so many interviews of like, yeah, yeah my dad was BTK. Oh, really? Yeah. I, I, I know that the um, Zodiac Killer had an obsession with um, the Mikado. And there was another serial killer who had an obsession with Gilbert and Sullivan. I was thinking of like doing an essay on that. <laughs> Some, uh, I can't remember who it was now, but yeah. Um, so there was, you said something interesting when we last met, which was about... Um, how most of these true crime stories, right. They, they either end at the crime or at, uh, the, uh, the trial. Right. Yeah, yeah. And it's everything that comes after that. That's more interesting. Like how people sort of, um, deal with trauma, both, uh, people around the victim and people around the perpetrator, the perpetrator, him or herself, these sorts of things. Um, and yet those stories are so infrequently explored. Yeah. I mean, to me, that's, that's more interesting, I think. And it came about from um, spending time with, with men in prison who had committed these crimes and realizing after a while that they just never talked about them because they just weren't interesting. Like everyone had some major crime in the past in this prison because they were in there for, you know, for life. But no one talked about like 
each other's case or each other's crime because they were like the least interesting thing about them. And they were so long ago as well. And um, I'm, I'm now working on this, on this book about a guy who's been in a psychiatric hospital for 27 years after killing his parents. And, um, and I was thinking after, after talking to him for so long that most, um, most crimes are committed by young men and they're men in their late teens or early 20s and they go to prison for life or for a very long time. And so for them, their life is just beginning. I mean, for the, for the victim, obviously, it's ending. But those men go on to grow up and have relationships and have jobs and maybe fall in love and get married. And um, it's... Did you see that film called them Who Took Johnny? It was a bit... Oh, God, you, I did. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you didn't like it? <laughs> I, I, I had kind of mixed feelings about it, but there was one moment that I really liked about it and that connects to this, which is um, there's one point when, where, where Johnny's mother reveals that at one point Johnny actually came home and then went again. And it was such, it's such a kind of like fascinating moment for me that this kid who's been missing for all these years and everyone is in search of actually she saw him and it's like someone has kind of stepped out of a, another dimension and come into this dimension and then returned um, because it's, you know, someone who no one believes exists turns out to be just an ordinary person actually. And, and thinking about people who are these mythical figures but then at a different point in their lives, they go on to become just ordinary people. It's like they're in a different dimension. I, was, I just finished reading um, uh, 99 Years Plus Life, and that's the biography of Nathan Leopold, of, of Leopold and Loeb. And he got out of prison at 53. He married a florist. He went to live in Puerto Rico. He wrote a book about the nation's bird life and had a life after... I mean, everyone just associates him with like Leopold and Loeb and nothing else. But that, you know, he had a life after that, a long life. And, you know, Sirhan Sirhan is up for parole. Um, I was thinking about the Menendez brothers, what, what they're doing these days. I think one of them is, I think they're both married. And these, these people who are known for like at that moment, that moment in the, in the limelight as these, um, as representatives of this great evil mm. they go on to they're kind of diminished in size but they become ordinary people again mm. and yeah that really interests me as does the fact as do their victims they become ordinary people again they become real and stronger and and they go through ups and downs of trauma and yeah the way that people kind of go in and out of this dimension this mythologizing dimension i think that's what's one of the interesting things about true crime and and I, I also think that, that one of the reasons why much attention isn't paid to the um, like victims of color or marginalized victims is that, that the author of a work on them would then have to get into like social issues and race and, mm -hmm. and um, the, the um, societal um, structures that create crime and, and it, and it's not just about an individual story. And, yeah, 
Yeah. I mean, I think the most boring thing about uh, true crime is how much we, the story is sort of managed by the victim's families. Oh, yeah. yeah. Who, their stories are always going to be, this was a perfect angel and this evil monster came into our lives and ruined it. Um, which is not an interesting story. It's just, it's just unbearable. I mean, it's so dull. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's just so uninteresting. And, and it's in some ways it's disrespectful to the victims too, because it just makes them one dimensional and flat and boring. <laughs> I, I have thought many times that if I were murdered and my parents were interviewed about me and my death, I would come back from the grave to kill them. <laughs> like if they did that, Oh, we loved her so very much. She was such a bright light in our lives and it was snuffed out. Like you fucking. Yeah. So I and would then, crawl out of, out of the cemetery and, uh, kill I, them. I'd love to hear like this, a, a girl murdered and someone says, actually, she was kind of an ass. Yeah, I never she liked was her. Kind of a bitch. Yeah. No one liked her. <laughs> she was selfish. Yeah. I mean, I'm more interested. I'm more interested in girls that were kind of a bitch than uh, girls that always got good grades, you know? But the girls who are bitches don't get murdered. Forever. Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram, at Forever Dog Team, and liking our page on Facebook.